Thank you, you brethren, for uh, preparing ahead, help to lead us in singing. And if you'll turn then to Acts chapter 17, we're going to look at some portions in Acts 17 and in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, I know you've been in studies in the book of Acts and in this chapter recently, and you've been in 1 Thessalonians, many of you at least. And so we're going to kind of look at this from the standpoint of sharing the gospel. There are great lessons here on sharing the gospel, and there are certain emphases that the Holy Spirit gives us from the methodology that he gave to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is demonstrating a methodology. You know, sometimes, and you've done it here, we've done it here, we've done it in other places where I've been, you do kind of a a mass uh, tract distribution, a mail-out. Or you go down to the beach and you just hand out a lot of tracts to a lot of people. and But they're people you may not see again, right? I mean, you, you see them down there on the broad walk or whatever. Or like what Christian Eichley's doing up there at, at Edgewater, right? You do this mass distribution. And that can be effective too. But the emphasis here in Acts 17, and we'll see in First Thessalonians also, is more of a long-term, one-on-one, personal contact. That is the method that God uses most often, I think, for a continued work of discipleship because the person gets to know you, you get to know them, and not only do you share the gospel with them, you share your life with them. And that's what Paul emphasizes in 1 Thessalonians. Now, verse 30 of chapter 17 is an important verse to keep in mind and Thankful that the Holy Spirit's already brought it to our attention through one of our young ones. Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. That's the third time in this section he uses that idea of ignorance, which just means it's agonosis. Knowledge, gnosis with ah in front of it makes it a negative, so it's it's, it's a lack of knowledge. And you remember that they made it to the unknown God in verse 23. And Paul says, to the one that you, without knowing, that's the one I proclaim to you. Isn't that interesting? You, you called him the unknown God. Well, I'm going to build on that. I'm going to connect with that. You're right. You don't know him, but I know him and I want to share him with you. What Paul does here in Acts 17, particularly to the Athenians... And that, that's the, the message at Mars Hill, the Areopagus message, we sometimes refer to it, is a great lesson in itself because I'm not going to be able to take time this morning to outline it, but it has practical value for us because this is the message to the what we call cultured paganism. And that's where we live. I mean, Acts 17 the Athenians and, and they, the pride of their philosophy and their worldview and their, their great architecture, right? All you gotta do, you take an Athenian from the first century here, all you gotta do is look at the Parthenon today, it's in, in ruins, right? But it's still standing and take him up to Washington DC and show him the Supreme Court building, show him the Congress building and the White House. And he says, oh yeah, that would fit right in in the first century. You're using our architecture. The same kind of columns. We had the Ionic, Doric, and what was the other one? The third different Corinthian, I think, columns that they had. Well, you're doing them too. So our culture today is just an extension of what he's talking about here. And it's, to me, it's fascinating. In that portion, he mentions the Stoics and the Epicureans. They're the only two philosophy groups that I know mentioned, acknowledged in the Bible. There's been a lot of them in history, right? But God chose to acknowledge these two. And that tells me something. If He does that, then there's something I can learn from that. And really, I think, without taking a lot of time to defend it to you, I think they represent two poles, opposite poles, the Stoics and the Epicureans. Now, there's a lot of details of their philosophical system in you can say, well, you're overgeneralizing, which means you're misrepresenting them, and maybe I am a little bit. But basically, you could say the Stoics is basically a life of self-control, and the Epicureans is a life of do what you want, loose living. We sometimes use the, 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 the term 
amongst assemblies, well, there's, they're tight and they're loose. That's the two poles. Tight would be legalistic. Loose would be no rules. <laughs> Anything goes. And, and that, isn't that a characteristic of humanity in the flesh without God? Always running to one of the two extremes. If you've got teenagers, this is what they're getting exposed to by their peers in school. And who they, it's either those that are real, you know, I can do it myself. That's the Stoics. I don't need any help from anybody. And I've got all these kind of rules and I've got a rigorous routine that I follow. I get up at so much time in the morning and I have my exercises and I drink certain kind of power drinks and all these things, you know, all these. And, and the Epicureans would say, hey, you know, whatever goes, but don't put your rules on me. Right? And both groups are in ignorance. <laughs> now, we use that word ignorance in a bad connotation today. And it doesn't mean it in a bad way. It just means lack of knowledge. Lack of understanding of what? Of the true God. Of the Word of God. Of Jesus Christ. Of who they are inside. And God says, I've, I've overlooked these times. How long had He overlooked the times of ignorance? From the time of the flood, from Noah, all the way to the first century A.D., he overlooked that ignorance. And, and these, after the flood, Noah's three sons, right? Japheth, Ham, and Shem, they all knew the truth. They knew the true and living God. But you see, generation after generation, they departed from the truth. It's hard to pass it on to the children, isn't it? It's by no means automatic. You can't just put the Bible under their pillow and hope it's going to come up through the duct others at night. It doesn't work that way, does it? And so they gradually... And so here are the Japhethites. The Athenians represent Japheth. You know, the, the Western Europeans, big, which a lot of us come from. And... And they developed this massive pantheon of false gods, idols. The scriptural term for them is, is not gods. You see that in your portion. It's really demons. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.20, right, that these idols, or really the power in the idol, there's nothing in the idol. The power is in the demon that the idol connects people to. So these people are extremely superstitious. And they've got a God for everything. There's a God for the tree. There's a God for the flowers. There's a God for the rain. There's a God for the sunshine. There's a God for certain bad things that happen in your life. There's a God for when good things happen in your life. And then there's, of course, the unknown God. In case we miss something, you know. And Paul says, I can see you're very religious. Really, that word would be better translated superstitious. My dad used to say he went to home. Home he died, I hope, to the Lord in January. But in witnessing to him for almost 40 years. And he would, he would say to me, even right up to near the end, well, you've got your religion and I got my religion. And I respect your religion, so you respect mine. You ever witnessed to someone like that? I got my religion. Yeah, but what is it rooted in? See, Dad had thought he'd covered all the bases. You know, he gave, he had the Catholic thing, and he had the Hindu thing, and he had the, the Bible thing, and he had the Jesus thing, thought he'd seen an apparition of the Lord, so he's resting in that. But, he had the Word of God, but he never opened it. He never opened the Bible. How about you? How about me, right? You have a Bible, do you use it? <laughs> That's what the young person from China said. You have a Bible? He said, we, we've got one page of it in our language. And we treasure it. You've got the whole book and it sits on your shelf. You have a Bible, but are you doing, are you reading it and then acting on it? It's one thing to read it and even memorize it. The Pharisees did that, but they didn't act on it. And you and I witness to people like that. 
And so Paul says, this time of ignorance, God overlooked. But now, something's changed. What had changed in Acts 17.30? What was the monumental event of all history that had changed? God had visited the planet in the person of His Son. And He had died on a cross and risen from the dead. The resurrection was true. And so God says, you have additional revelation now concerning me and concerning sin and concerning yourself that you never had before and I'm going to hold you accountable for it. He can do that, you know. He made us in His image and likeness. And that's why He says that He commands. Is it all right for... I had some friends in Louisiana say, well, you know, God doesn't command us Christians to do anything. Oh, He doesn't? I mean, they were way out of fellowship with the Lord and they finally left the meeting. But God doesn't command us. God doesn't have any expectations of you as a Christian, as a child of God. My! They tore, they, he tore a lot of sheets out of his Bible somewhere along the way. There was something missing there, huh? God commands who? All men everywhere. Whoa! God commands every human being in every nation and tribe and tongue on the planet. And he commands all them to do what? According to the verse. To repent. You know, it's so unfortunate. It's only been true in the last, I was going to say 50 years, but we're already, it's be 70 years back to the 1950s now, almost. But, before then, repentance was a part of the gospel. But, you know, here recently we had this thing of trying to make, well, we gotta make the gospel more palatable, more easy to digest, more easy. And they say there's no repentance. No repentance in the gospel. What are you gonna do with Acts 17.30? And Paul does that again in Acts 26 and about three other places. In Acts alone. God commands all men everywhere to repent. To change the direction they're going. To stop. Look and listen, right? To check up, as it were. And recognize that they're wrong. Their thinking is wrong about the world. Their thinking is wrong about themselves. Their thinking is wrong about God. Their thinking is wrong about the Bible. Their thinking is wrong about Jesus Christ. That's why they need to change their thinking. That's what repent means. Metanoia, change of mind, change of thinking. You're on the wrong path and you need to turn and get on the right one. By trusting my son, Jesus Christ. So that puts people at a fork in the road, doesn't it? And people don't like that. Have you found that when you've witnessed the true gospel, the biblical gospel to them? They sometimes don't like it. But don't take it personal. It's not against you. It's against the person you're representing. And he's a person with a capital P, the Lord Jesus, right? That's who we're representing. So don't take it personal. Thick skin, soft heart, right? We tell that. Especially when we're witnessing. So the Lord has led the writer of Acts, Luke, to put together three different scenarios of Paul sharing the gospel here in one chapter in Acts 17. You have his message to the Thessalonians, and then to the Bereans, and then to the Athenians. And I want you to notice, that's what we're going to focus on this morning, his methodology, his way of describing the gospel is a little different in each one according to his audience. So we call that audience sensitivity, right? You're sharing the gospel with someone, you need to get to know them first to know how to approach and then to have the privilege of entering their space, as it were, and explaining and demonstrating and proving who Jesus of Nazareth is. And, we, and we'll see three different responses, too. 
actually four different responses because we see two different responses with the Thessalonians. So first he comes to Thessalonica in verse 1 of chapter 17 when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And what does Paul's method that we've already seen in Acts when there's a synagogue in the city he comes to, what does he do? He's going to go to the synagogue first. You say, why? Well, a couple of reasons. One is he knew the principle that the gospel went to the Jew first and then to the Greek or the Gentile, right? Romans 1.16. And why was that the case? Because God had made promises to Abraham and had, may we say respectfully, Lord, obligated himself by covenant to that nation to give them the gospel first. That's one reason. But another reason would be more the reason for us. He went to people who already had a familiarity with the Bible. See, when he went to the Athenians, they had no Bible. <laughs> I mean, they, they were way out there, right? And so his approach in sharing the message with them is totally different. But it's a great example to us because the people... And you go to a university today and you've got Acts 17 right here. The message of the Athenians is the message of the universities all around us. They have all their philosophies. They've got all their teachers with all their supposed knowledge. And they're lost in darkness and don't know it. They think they're okay. That's the sad thing about darkness. Proverbs 4.19 tells us that, right? The principle about darkness is they stumble and they don't even know why they're stumbling. You ever been around and work with someone like that? They think they had all the answers and you try to share them. And they, oh no, I've got all the answers. And you can tell they're, just, they're falling all over themselves, but they don't even see it. That's darkness. That's where we, we all were there at one time. So Paul goes into the synagogue. As his custom was went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from what? Now, Paul had some training at the university there in Tarsus, right? He could have used science, philosophy, talked about the weather, talked about the Olympics. What did he do? Went straight to the Scriptures. And the emphasis on the Word of God all the way through Acts 17, at least the first half, is so strong. You can't miss it. Luke uses different terms for it. Calls it the Word, calls it the Word of God, calls it the Scriptures. Talking about your Bible that's on your lap or on your phone if you're using a smartphone. And so he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and demonstrating, proving that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Remember, that's the method our Lord Jesus used with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He explained and reasoned to them from what? The Old Testament, the Scriptures. That it was always the case that God had revealed that His Son, the Messiah, had to suffer and then enter glory. Remember, the Lord chastised those two. He says, you've got your Old Testament and you didn't know that? You should have been looking for that. And we should know that too. Suffering first, then glory. And that same is true for us as believers in the church. Paul says that in Romans 8, right? Suffering first, and then glory. That's why the... The name it and claim it so-called message that's been out there for 40 years is, is so misleading. Gordon Fee says it, it's the worst thing that ever came upon the church because the health and wealth, the name it and claim it message, I'm not going to call it a gospel because it's not a gospel. It's not a good news. It's error. It's false. They say you should have glory now, right? You should have no pain, no suffering now. And if you have sufferings, because of lack of faith. You should be healthy and wealthy all the time now. Well, what are you, how does that fit in with suffering now 
glory later. They're putting the glory out of place. We expect to suffer now. Paul will tell that Thessalonians that in the first Thessalonians letter. It's interesting. He says, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Messiah. Now that doesn't maybe hit you or me today in 2021 like it would have hit them. But try to imagine the Jewish nation. If you go back to Abraham, that's roughly 2000 B.C. So for 2000 years up to the first century A.D., 2100 years, they had been looking for, anticipating, maybe imagining what it was going to be like when the Messiah would come. The seed of the woman in Genesis 3, right? Looking, anticipating. And now Paul says, this Jesus of Nazareth whom I preached to you, he's the Messiah. And I try to wonder what Paul, what was the look on his face when he shared this, right? Because he's proving it, he's demonstrating. I mean, was he jumping through the roof, you know, I mean, in excitement, you know, he's here, he's come, and he's already left for a time, but he's coming back. So he goes to the scriptures, and you say, well, I can't do that, I don't know the word of God like that. Okay, not all of us has that. And we have different spiritual gifts, right? So we'll see a different methodology he'll use with the Athenians. But for those of us who know the roots of the gospel in the Bible, it's not that hard, right? I, I use the Romans road. And it, it's, you know, you memorize those, those scriptures and work you through, but then you can do the same thing with the gospel of John. You can use the book of Acts. They're different methods, however the Lord leads. And you don't, I don't like a canned approach. Because we don't see that in the Bible. Paul never used the same approach twice. And it doesn't tell us much respect for the person we're sharing the gospel with to just use a canned approach and not thinking about their own person individually, right? Their own background. Paul was sensitive to that. So he's reasoning from the scriptures to the Thessalonians. What's the response? Well, it's twofold. Verse 4, some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, that would be the God-fearers that attended the synagogue. They were Gentiles that were allowed to attend. And not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Wow! And that's the group he writes 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians 2. So I would encourage you, maybe you follow this method already, but I would encourage you when you're reading through the book of Acts or if you're reading the epistles, to put the epistles in the place where they belong in the book of Acts. Galatians would have happened already in chapter 14. That's when he was there. But here you would put First and Second Thessalonians. So... Hold your finger here. We'll come back to the Bereans here in a minute. But go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Because Paul gives us additional information about what happened there. And we want to know. what He elaborates on the result. So he says in verse 5 of chapter 1. I'm just going to look at a few verses. You've been studying it recently. I'll just remind you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only. See, when you share the gospel and you've been praying for the person ahead of time, you're praying silently as you're sharing it and you're praying for them after you've shared it, right? For their hearts to be receptive. Because this is what happens. Our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. What? What? Did you notice that? What kind of men we were among you? So it's not just the message, it's the messenger. (laughs) Paul says, you knew our testimony among you, that we were transformed people. 
We were changed people. We weren't the same as what we were before we were saved. And that should be true in each of our lives too. If you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you should be different after knowing Him. Amen? If I laid a cadaver up here on the table, or on the chairs here, that I could get from the morgue, right? A dead body and laid it there. Will, will it respond to any? No. I, I just, get up! Go sweep the floor! Go clean the bathroom! Any response? Dead. But I'd take one of you that's alive and I give a command. Your eyes light up and maybe you see a smile on your face. What's happened? It's the difference between death and life, right? If you're alive in the Lord Jesus, you can't help but show it because you formerly were dead, but now you're alive. And you've begun a road, a journey of transformation. And you're being transformed into Christ's image from one glory to another. How often, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18? Daily. Daily. Do you approach the Word of God with that expectation of daily change into the image of Christ? Do you? I hope you do. In other words, it's not just a false religion that we, you say, well, I come to church on Sunday. I mean, I'm a busy person. I can't give you any more time than that. Or maybe I come on Sunday and Wednesday, but that's all I got time. This isn't just a religion that we just come and play church, right? This is a real life journey of transformation. With a lot of expectation from ourselves, from one another, and from the Lord. It's powerful. So he says, you became followers of us and of the Lord. How long did it take him? After about 10 years, they decided to become followers of the Lord? No, he's writing this just weeks after. This is, this is an infant church. Do you want to know what basic discipleship 101 looks like you got it right there in first and second thessalonians it's an infant church they've got there's no church history yet because the church just began right so they can't go back to the well all those years of martin luther and the reformation and all the years of the evangelical awakening of the 1800s they don't have any of that there's no history they're the they're the beginning <laughs> they're right at the beginning they're cutting the edge of a new work of God in this world. And he said, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word, how? Without any affliction? No, in much affliction, tribulation, right? But with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You mean you can have the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of affliction? That's why it's called the gospel. <laughs> That's why it's called good news. It's not some false man-made philosophy. And then look what he says. You became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia. Their church wasn't even in the province of Achaia. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in how often? Where? In every place. It's unmistakable. And then verses 9 and 10 Chapter 1, give us one of the best definitions of repentance. It's interesting. Acts 17.30 gives us the message. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent. And here we have it. You want to know what repentance looks like from the Bible? Here we have it. Don't be distracted. Just focus on the Word of God. Verse 9. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you what? You turned... Interest, note the word order. You didn't turn away from your old life because you don't have the power to do that. None of us does. So don't tell people that are lost that they need to do that. Just say no to drugs. 
That's what we had from the government in 1990, right? Just say no. It's like talking to that cadaver, you know, just say no. There's no response. He's dead in sin. For they themselves declare how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice living and true instead of dead and false gods of their pantheon. Their pantheon loaded with all kinds of dead, false gods. How about you? How many of you got in your life? In mine, right? We need to take those idols and get rid of them. (laughs) False ideas about life and living. False ideas about the Bible. And by the power of Christ, judge them. And remove them from our lives with His help. But you notice the turning, they turn, this is what it means to trust in the Lord Jesus. He turned to God. If they turned to God, they weren't turning toward God before that, right? They turned to the living and true God. And when they turned to the living and true God, guess what's behind them? Guess what's in the rearview mirror? Their old life. <laughs> the old life is behind them. They turn their back on the old life. When they turn to the living and true God, that's what genuine, true repentance looks like. That's what it means to have a change of heart and change of mind. But not only that, to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You know, sometimes we hear this concept that in basic discipleship, when we're building up New believers. Well, we're not going to talk about eschatology. No, no, no. No eschatology. Because after all, that splits churches and it causes confusion. And you know what I mean by eschatology. The doctrine of end times. The doctrine of the second coming. You've heard it, right? Oh, no, no. We we avoid that. We don't talk. Paul sure didn't avoid it. This is an infant church. New believer. And he, he talks about the second coming in every chapter of 1st Thessalonians and in every chapter of 2nd Thessalonians. In other words, his coming back is essential. Not optional to the curriculum. It's essential to a biblical curriculum on discipleship. So don't listen to those false voices out there. They're, they're basically diluting the gospel and they're diluting the word of God and they're bringing in human reasoning and human philosophy into the gospel. Paul says to wait for his son from heaven to new believers. Are you waiting for his son? Because if you're waiting for his son from heaven, what does that do to your priorities, right? If you really think he's coming in your lifetime, would that change how you make your decisions? I mean, our minds, we tend to put, you know, well, it's way out there in the future, right? Eventually when I die, and then after that, well, that's way out there. Paul says, no, bring it in right here to today. He could come in your lifetime. But not only that, you could die today, even if he doesn't come. You see how we develop this kind of false expectation? Well, yeah, I'm 24 years old. I got lots of years left to make decisions. We were just talking about it in Boca last Thursday night. Ten-year-old died. Not in Boca. He was a friend of the family. Ten-year-old. You think he thought he was going to have a lot more time at ten years of age? And so if you think you've got all this time ahead of you, you put off essential decisions that you need to be making now. You put off priorities that you need to be bringing into your life and I need to be bringing into our life now, right? That's called in the Bible the sin of presumption. When we presume upon God, oh no, You're not going to give me cancer. You may give it to him. You may give it to her, but you're not going to give it to me. (laughs) That's a sin of presumption. Or you get in your car and you, you maybe you put your seatbelt on. Well, you pretty much have to these days, right? Because the thing beeps at you too much from the dashboard. But, 
But, you know, you put on your seatbelt and you you drive out here. You think, well, I've driven this road back home a thousand times. I can turn on the radio and tune out and think about all kinds of things. And somebody runs a red light. And you're in eternity. Boom. You all know Pete Meyer. Remember Pete? They used to be here. You know the story about his son? Into motorcycles. Nothing wrong with that, necessarily. But Pete had been warning his son from Proverbs 29.1 that if you keep putting off the Lord, destruction will come upon you suddenly and there's no remedy. Because his son was pushing the edge. He was pushing the envelope. He was just, you need to come back to the Lord. Ah, And so he's riding out of his neighborhood, right down here. Hollywood Hills. He's riding out of his neighborhood. Friend had visited at the house. They both got on their bike. He said, I'll ride with you out to the interest of the neighborhood. Done it a thousand times. Didn't even put on his helmet because, I mean, just going to be in the neighborhood, right? There goes one right there. And thank you, Lord, for the uh, visual. And and he goes around a turn there in the neighborhood a thousand times, right? I've made this right. But somebody decided that weekend to take some of those palm branches down off their palm tree, and they had him out by the curb in the street, and he comes around that turn. I don't know how fast he was going because we never heard from his friend. Goes around that bend, loses it, hits his head on the curb, dead and he was still in his 20s brought up in Sunday school VBS children's church camp all these privileges but he didn't act on them so you can have all kinds of head knowledge I talked to some of the people today that when we share the gospel and you know they have all kinds of head knowledge But what are you doing with it? What are you doing with the knowledge you have? Because God is going to hold you accountable. And me. You say, well, I've got all this Bible knowledge. Well, what are you doing with it? What have you done with the privileges I've given you? God can say, right? And so Paul tells them, he says in verse 3 of chapter 2, Our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. He gives some description here of what the wrong approach is to sharing the gospel. Very valuable because we have a lot of methodology today that they encourage us that includes kind of, well, let's, if you can trick them into believing, that's a good thing. You can put another notch in your belt and you can put it on your prayer sheet on Wednesday night. You know, well, I led this one to Christ. Well, like old Brother Stewart used to say, don't call it believer's baptism because you don't know if you're baptizing a real believer or not. <laughs> we say when we baptize on the basis of your profession, right? We don't know if they're born again or not. We hope they are. In time, that'll show, right? But Paul says, we knew, and we shared it. But as we've been approved, verse 4, by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, you see. God has tested us and found us faithful. And that's the approval he's talking about, approval by testing. And we consider ourselves stewards. And it's the charge of every steward to be found faithful, right? First Corinthians 4, 2. I've got it written in my journal just as a thing to hit me between the eyes sometimes. You flip the page and i got it in big letters. Give account of your stewardship. <laughs> you know where that's from? In Luke 16, 2, right? Remember the unjust steward? And his, his manager says, Give account of your... Well, we're going to give account of our stewardship too. What have you done with the privileges and opportunities? And I love this in verse 8. 
He talks about how they were gentle among them as a nursing mother in verse 7. And so, verse 8, affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but also our very own lives. You see what evangelism is? It's not just giving the message, see you later, and walk on. Investing there, Paul says, we desire, he's talking to the Thessalonian believers, we affectionately long for you. The challenge to me is, when you come to be with believers here at Boulevard on the Lord's Day or on Wednesday or whenever, do you come with eager anticipation and affectionate longing to be, I can't wait to be with my beloved brethren. I can't wait to see so-and-so's face, to see the smile on their face, to see the joy in their heart. I can't wait to be... Or is it just serious look? Why would the lost want to come into that? They get that all during the week in the office. You say, well, we don't want to go into charismatic extremes. Well, don't let charismatic extremes deprive you of the real Christian experience. Because the real Christian experience includes the mind, the heart, and the will, right? The whole person, not just the head, but all, every part of us. And so we should have this delight. Paul says, he said, I long to see you. He said in verse 17, chapter 2, but we, brethren, having been taken away from you for, and the idea is that we were torn away from you because remember the persecution broke out and that we had to leave. He said, for a short time in presence, but not in heart, we endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. You get the picture. Eagerness to see your face because that's the expression of your person. So we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. And that's what we see happening in Acts 17. Satan hindered. But so what does he do? He sends Timothy. He says, I'm, I was concerned because when the persecution broke out after we left with you, you were baby Christians, you were new believers. I was afraid you'd walk away from the gospel and walk away from Christ, just like you know, we see people doing oftentimes today that they trust in the Lord and then they start to have some trials coming into their life and by where they're not at the meeting, they're not at camp. We know people like that, right? They're gone. They got a little trouble. And that could be because we didn't give them the right message. If we told them, hey, you're on easy street now, you can coast, it's all going to be peaches and cream, you didn't give them the biblical gospel, whatever you gave them. Paul went through all the churches in Acts 14.22 and he said, it's through much tribulation you enter the kingdom. Suffering now, glory later. The glory is certain, but it's suffering now. And you say, well, why did God do it this way? Because that's God's sovereign choice. Paul says, Timothy comes to him. Timothy comes back with a good report. Verse 6 of chapter 3. But now, notice how much of 1 Thessalonians is not doctrinal, it's relational. He's talking about his relationship with them, right? He could be given doctrine. And he does give a lot of good doctrine. But he says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us greatly desiring to see us, so it's mutual, as we also desire to see you. Therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by what? Your faith. <laughs> Does it encourage you to gather with people of like-minded faith? Should. Part of the reason why, we, not the only reason we gather, but it's part of it, right? We, we share in community together. We're part of the household of God, Paul says in Ephesians 2. We belong to one another. We've been bonded together by the Holy Spirit. We have responsibilities for one another. And so we want to be there for one another, right? For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Now we live. See, we are alive when you're living for Christ. When you're going on for the Lord, 
Paul says, now we live. That's the essence of what life is. You see how the gospel has permeated every aspect of Paul's life and ministry and what true living is all about. So we'll come back to Acts 17 real quickly. Then, then you have, so he, he talks about the persecution in verse 5 to verse 9. And then in verse 10, he talks about going to another town, the Bereans, right? We like to use that word, a characteristic of ourselves. But what, what did, what characterized the Bereans? He went to the synagogue, right? Brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. They, they arrived, they went into the synagogue. Now notice what the Bible says in verse 11. These were fair-minded. One translation says noble-minded. More fair-minded or noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. Why? Well, they received the word with all readiness. You ever been sharing the gospel with someone and you, and you recognize that the Holy Spirit has done some preparation ahead of time? What does that look like? You know, someone said that, that we can hear the gospel 153 times. I don't know how he did that statistic before we come to Christ. That most people, you, have, you hear it more than once. And so you could be the third person or you could be the 53rd or you could be the 153rd sharing the gospel. And if you're the 153rd, you get to lead him to the Lord. But other people have done the work of plowing before that, right? Of getting the heart ready. That whole drawing ministry of the Holy Spirit comes in. And Paul says these were more noble-minded because they were ready. <laughs> How were they different from the Thessalonians? Both of them went to synagogue. But the Thessalonians had to be persuaded from the Word of God. And the Bereans, they had open Bibles. You know what the difference is? Both of them had Bibles. But one had closed Bible and the other one had open Bible. <laughs> right? How about you and me? We talk about our own life. Is it an open Bible we start the day with? That's what readiness means. So when Paul began to explain things from the Old Testament and how Jesus is fulfilling them, they're, they're checking him out with the Scripture. Like you should do everyone you hear the Scripture from, including me, right? They would check and see and validate if these things were so. And as you do that, the Word of God does a cleansing work, does a life-giving work, does a preparing work for us then to be able to share the gospel with someone else. All of this under the guidance of God. Then he comes to the Athenians, and that's USA. That's Western European culture. That's Plurality, immensity of gods and false philosophies all over the place. You can go just one campus and you could probably get 35 or 40 different philosophies in one visit if you talk to different people. So what do you do? What does he do there? He steps back to the God of creation. You notice that? He steps back and talks about the God of creation. And he goes back to the time when the, when the uh, God who made the world, verse 24, and everything in it, since He's Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands, as though He needed anything, since He gives life, breath, and all things. That's the providence. We call that the providence of God. He gives life, breath, and everything. You realize that? Your next breath is in God's hands. We don't like to think that because we say, no, I go, my doctor takes care of that. I'm, I'm going to trust my doctor. No, no, your life breath is in God's hands. He may use the doctor. He may use something else. But your next breath, your next step is in God's hands. He's the sovereign. He made it and he maintains it. You notice there's not a bit of evolution in his message to the Athenians. They knew about evolution. I agree with Henry Morse. It goes back to Nimrod 
really. This, uh, the evolutionary ideas go back that far, back to Nimrod in Genesis 10. And he proved it in his book, The Long War Against God. But he starts with, no, no, God made everything around us and he sustains it. What are you going to do about it? You're accountable to him, he said. He even talks about how he divided the nations up. When did he do that? Tower of Babel, right? After the flood. He divided the nations up. God knows. See, the Greeks thought, well, there are certain gods in this nation and this nation has these other gods and these have these other gods and all these different gods. And God is in control of all that. And he says, you know what? These times of ignorance where you've gone on and on and on with this false philosophy God's overlooked. But now his son has come and he commands all men everywhere to repent. To come to Christ. And when I was on my way in here this morning, there was a big rainbow over Boulevard coming from the east. Because you all had a big thunderstorm had come through here. And I, I like rainbows because they're in the Bible. And because there's a rainbow over God's throne right now in heaven, in the third heaven, according to Ezekiel, right? But it's also a picture of hope after the flood. And I'd like to think that this morning we sang, we had read to us Edwin Orr's great song on revival, Cleanse Me, O God. Maybe there's someone here that hasn't totally been convinced of the gospel of Jesus Christ and hasn't come to Christ for salvation. Here's your chance. What are you waiting for? We're praying for you right now. Come to Christ and be saved from this wicked and adulterous generation. But maybe you're someone that you say, well, I'm a believer. I was baptized and put my stick in the fire at camp and all that. But maybe you're away from God right now. Today's a good day to come back to God and come back to Jesus Christ. You say, well, he would never have me back. Yes, he would. You don't know what I've done. I don't need to know what you've done. None of us needs to know what you've done. God knows what you've done, and he still loves you. And his arms are open to you. We were reminded of that a couple of weeks ago in Luke 15. And may we have hearts as an assembly that delight in gathering together, eagerly anticipating one another's face. Sad when we don't see someone that we know should be here, right? And following up on them when we can, as the Lord guides us, and delight in this communion, this fellowship with the living and true God. Amen? So, Father, we thank you for your word and these things that we're seeing here. And we trust it. We have opportunity tonight to interact and ask questions and contemplate this, that you'll guide us by your spirit. Be with us as we part. Take us all home safely, Lord. We're thankful for everyone that's here, for those that are with us on the Internet. Oh, Lord, do a great work in souls today for your glory. Magnify your name in our midst. We ask in the Lord Jesus' name's sake. Amen.